What's up, everyone? Welcome to Weekends. Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. You guys demanded we listened. And so for those of you who are watching live, the show will be available to everyone, including non-members, as we do it live. However, after the fact, the full show will only be available to our members. Um, So we wanted to make sure that for those of you who like to watch live, who like to interact with us, but maybe don't have the means for membership, um, have the opportunity to do what they love. And so um, we're really happy to do that for you guys. At the same time, uh, you know, people need to... Kale's got to eat. Kale's got to eat. This (laughs) is all for Kale's salary. You and I have other jobs. This is Kale's only job, you know? Exactly. Although he has been cheating on us a little bit with Ben Burgess' show, which no judgment. I love Ben Burgess. I'll take it. I know about that. We can be in this polyamorous relationship with Ben Burgess. I'm going to fire him. No, I'm going to fire him. I I can't. No, we can't do this. I'm going to tell Bosco to fire him immediately. All right. So look, we've got such a great show ahead for you guys. I'm really looking forward uh, to our interview today with Branko. Uh, I don't want to mispronounce his name. Milanovic. Milanovic. Yes. Branko Milanovic. Um, he's incredible. And uh, I, I have so many questions to ask him about, um, of course, inequality. You know, he used to be a researcher for the International Bank. Um, and so he's, I'm sure, the kind of expert that you'd want to hear from in regard to what we're experiencing with inequality, especially in the COVID era. Um, We're going to, of course, talk about Afghanistan. And of course, Nando, we can't do today's show without weighing in on your topic. Want to give them a little preview? There's some labor strike uh, activity over at the Snack Factory. Our favorite snacks, uh, they're on strike. So, you know, we'll break it all down in my segment. Absolutely. Um, so before we get to all of that, uh, there, a huge part of the show, of course, is going to be dedicated to Afghanistan and some foreign policy. But Nando, you and I love to uh, critique the media, especially yes. when it comes to their angle on foreign policy related matters. So let's talk about that a little bit. So members of the media have been hyperventilating over the U.S. troop withdrawal in Afghanistan and uh, essentially what that led to. It certainly has been a chaotic scene as Afghan citizens are attempting to flee. The Taliban took over Afghanistan um, by essentially taking control of Kabul over last weekend. And so what's amazing is the, in my opinion, faux concerns of some members of the media, which you're about to see in this video. Would you say that there is no interest for us having some presence on the borders of Iran, on the borders of Pakistan, on the borders of uh, uh, near China, would you, or Tajikistan? Would you say that we're that we should just give that up? I would say that the president does not believe that the United States should be fighting and dying in a war for the purpose of sustaining American military boots near Tajikistan or Pakistan or Iran. No, I would say that that is something uh, that is not. Could, we, we, what you just laid out as a national security interest, we would not agree that it is right to ask American soldiers to risk their lives for the purpose of maintaining a presence near Tajikistan. <laughs> it's kind of funny. It, it, it was one of the most ridiculous questions, I think. I mean, I don't what know, about Tajikistan? You're just going to give 
Tajikistan up? You're just gonna give that up? I mean, I love the the, fr- the framing of that. You're just gonna give that up? The, what about Tajikistan? What about our precious base in Tajikistan, folks? It's like it's almost like Trump is like the beautiful the base in Tajikistan, folks. Is one of my favorite bases. It's one of my favorite bases. They have a great little McDonald's out there in Tajikistan. It's the first McDonald's ever. And the, the good people of Tajikistan, they love their McDonald's, and it's yeah, it's just it's Tajikistan. Just really funny. They're known for being great rakers of the forests. They rake the forests better than we do here in California, folks. <laughs> Tajikistan. <laughs> like, I mean, it's and look, just... it's, it's not to say that we don't care about the people of Tajikistan. It is to say, <laughs> though, that that reporter does not really care about Tajikistan. No. It's really no. about perpetuating more of the failed U.S. foreign policy in that region. That's what this is about. Yeah, I mean, the media is always very, the mainstream media is always very pro-war. And we know this, we like, we know this intellectually, but it is also bracing and wild to see it play out in real time to just full on, like the past couple days have just been absolutely mind-blowing in terms of just the full-on assault from every side uh, toward the Biden administration's decision to pull out of Afghanistan. Um, It it was just, I mean, everywhere, like every sector of the media um, is just like just barraging him. And and to their credit, um, you know, Anthony Blinken, who I, you know, who I hate and and Biden, who I'm not a fan of at all. um, Like, they're just like, they're doing the right thing, which is just like, no, shut up. Like, no, mm-hmm. they're, they're not even like they're not even like uh, trying to uh, whiffle waffle and be like, yeah, you know, maybe we'll do a they're just like, no, shut up. No. Like when that guy's yeah. like, he's like, what about Tajikistan? Blinken's like, no, I don't think like we need to do this for the, the presence of Tajikistan. Like, shut the fuck up. And, and like in Biden, when in his interviews that he's done uh, post uh, uh, the pullout, um, to his credit, again, you know, I, I saw the one with George Stephanopoulos where Stephanopoulos was like, come on, can't you can't you just like say, you know, like, w- you know, you made a mistake, Joe, you know, like this is this was really bad, you know, and Joe Biden's like, no, I'm not saying that. And I'm and I don't care what you think. And I'm just like, I've never I didn't expect this. I just didn't expect this at all. I didn't expect this level of just of firmness um, yeah. in that decision. I expected them to waffle a lot more. Um, and when I saw when there were reports that they were going to send troops back to maybe like I, I was like, OK, this is this is it. They're just, that's, this is what they're going to do. They're just going to like as soon as it's like st- shit starts to go bad, they're just going to send more troops. And I was worried about haven't. that. Yeah. 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 The only They have sent troops specifically to help with evacuating U.S. citizens in the region, um, but they're not reengaging in that failed war. And so, look, it's not we should never think about it as what's the. What's in the heart of these politicians or these administration officials? Like, is it because they ha- have good moral character that they decided to? No, that none of that matters. Everything is a political calculation. So the media can hyperventilate all it wants, but the fact of the matter is, my speculation is this will have absolutely no negative impact on Biden's so-called legacy. Uh, Right now, his numbers are dipping. And sure, maybe the chaotic scenes out of Afghanistan have a little bit to do with it. I think it has more to do with the fact that COVID is spiking again throughout the country. And we're seeing mask mandates again throughout the country, uh, certain guidelines being implemented. But I 
Americans want to focus on fixing things at home. So uh, no one, no one's sitting around the dinner table right now talking about their concerns about Tajikistan or, or any of that. Like my heart breaks for, for some of the, you know, Afghan citizens who are dealing with, um, you know, brutal situations right now. Uh, you know, you, you hear the stories about them trying to flee, literally holding on to military planes, um, and dying as a result because you can't just hold on to a plane and make your way back to, or make your way to any country that way. Um, so it is heartbreaking in that regard, but I think what this all demonstrates is just how honestly hollow our efforts were in Afghanistan regarding nation building, right? <laughs> like this was really a way, and I'll get into it uh, in more detail in my decode segment this week. Um, this is really more about redistributing wealth from the bottom to the top. This is all about weapons, uh, you know, being manufactured and sold uh, during this war. And now all those weapons have gone from the Afghan National Army to the Taliban. That's it. Yeah. 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 Um, I just, you know, I, I, I in terms of the political calculus, I, I, I think that in terms of Joe Biden's legacy, this is great for Joe Biden's legacy. Like the, the correct decisions tend to, um, you know, with hindsight and with time and all that stuff, um, tend to be vindicated in the in the public's imagination you know certain decisions that now look to us like no-brainers that presidents took uh you know back in the day um at the time were seen as controversial or whatever you know and there's and and then with time that just kind of fades away so this for joe biden's legacy is is great i mean i don't know if he even i don't know, I don't know if he understands it in those terms but it, but it's great um in the short term it's 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 brave because yeah, you know, I I think that the media still matters in terms of shaping uh, certain narratives, and something like this, we could have predicted the media reaction to it, which is just total blanket hostility. I mean, we were talking about in 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 our pre production chat just how, you know, the the media's treatment of Donald Trump was just entirely negative throughout, you know, not, not, I'm not saying that that was a necessarily a bad thing, but just negative, negative coverage for everything. Um, except for the time he decided to bomb Syria. Um, yeah. and I remember Brian Williams going like, oh, we are awed by the beauty of our weapons. Uh, and the immortal words of Leonard Cohen, uh, were just uh, these missiles, these cruise <laughs> missiles flying over Syria. I, I just, I, you know, it gives a little tingle in my little wee wee spot when I see the president <laughs> do that. And, and and they just like the media just like I was just like what the what the like all of these people who are just like Trump is just that dangerous you know all of a sudden are now like yeah this is great we love this we love this we love this and with Biden there's a little bit of the opposite going on where the media treatment of Biden has been pretty soft um, I find you know I I I find that the media just kind of has like a Trump hangover and that they're just like. There's just like a generally soft treatment of the Biden administration. I mean, there's just the fact that he's just not never around is not like discussed. They fucking love his uh, press secretary. They all want to make out with her and tell her that she's the the greatest thing that ever happened, which I just find so strange. And um, and then now that he does this, they're like, this is just like just like they just snap into place and total blanket hostility. Uh, it's pretty remarkable. I, I got to yeah. say it's just. Yeah. 
So the hostility that I noticed, it was it was pretty clear to me throughout the week, uh, was from Jake Tapper. And he's being celebrated by by liberals. Like his co- his coverage of this uh, has been celebrated. I'm just seeing the way uh, they're reacting to him. it on on Twitter. So I, I mean, his look. That question from that press conference was bad. But all week long, if you've been watching Jake Tapper on CNN, here's the way that he's covered the situation. Hello, I'm Jake Tapper in Washington, where the state of our union is watching a tragic foreign policy disaster unfold before our eyes. Weeks before the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and the deadline for President Biden's complete withdrawal of U.S. service members, the Taliban are laying waste to all the gains in that country. Having seized much of Afghanistan, the Taliban are now at the gates of the capital city of Kabul. This is not just about the overall idea of leaving Afghanistan. This is about leaving hastily and ineptly. Secretary Blinken, how did President Biden get this so wrong? You've been listening to President Biden speaking at the White House, forced to talk about the worsening crisis in Afghanistan, forced to speak uh, to the nation after the calamity of the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. The president stated that he stands squarely behind the decision he made to withdraw all U.S. forces from Afghanistan, even though he has, in fact, been forced to send roughly 6,000 back in. The president saying, in fact, that if anything, the events of the last few days, this foreign policy and humanitarian disaster proves to him that he made the right decision, given the fleeing of Afghan politicians from the country and the collapse of the Afghan military. He's just the smarmiest. He's just the smarmiest fuck. He drives me crazy because like his whole thing is like, I love the troops. I stand with the troops and the veterans. He does all kinds of events and he's just, you know, that's his thing. His that's his brand. He's he's like he drops all editorial kind of pretense of neutrality when it comes to the troops and the veterans. And what do you think? the fucking Afghanistan war does to these people like this like pointless war that just turns like young American men into murderous psychopaths because they're just there. um, And all, they all get PTSD. Tons of them get maimed. Mm -hmm. Like what I just like, he drives me absolutely insane. It's I, I really can't stand that. Just that just smarmy pose of like, well, this is a humanitarian and foreign policy disaster. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, like the Joe Biden just got it so wrong. And the, this idea that there was uh, a, um, quote unquote, competent way to do the pullout, um, that there's just some way in which like you're pulling out in an orderly fashion and, and you know, the, the forces on the ground are just like, OK, let's respect the timetables and stuff like that is just both. First of all, it's a it's a fantasy of imagination of what reality is on the ground in Afghanistan. And it's also a fantasy in terms of what the competence of the U.S. war machine is. The U.S. war machine is a bumbling, disastrous behemoth that doesn't do anything um, that isn't that like it's just that's just the way we not just the war machine, but like things at home. We can't even get the the federal rental assistance assistance payments out. Something as simple as getting checks into people's hands. We can't do that. You think we're going to pull out of Afghanistan in some kind of neat perfect way that no we just it's rip the band-aid off get out we got to get out like that's just i don't know it just drives me crazy and and look the humanitarian crisis that is taking place on the ground in afghanistan right now was a crisis that we started right yeah the taliban was empowered by the united states and and it's important to get into the history of that and understand because 
you know, we're not in any way minimizing any of the pain and suffering that Afghans are, are facing right now. My point is that U.S. intervention in Afghanistan, even before the Afghanistan war began in 2001, destroyed that country. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and it was all because we wanted to defeat the Soviets. We're the ones who empowered Al Qaeda and the Taliban. And so to pretend as though, you know, keeping the U.S. in there to continue um, these interventions and these forever wars is somehow the more humane option. It's just a brazen lie to the American people. And we're not going to stand for it here at Jacobin. The U.S. invasion of, Af- of Afghanistan has led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Afghans. Okay. The Taliban was in power before the U.S. Uh, uh, invaded in 2001, and they're a bad regime. Like, I don't, you know, they're bad, you know, but they weren't like out there murdering hundreds of thousands of people. The decision by the U.S. to invade has led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Um, so I'm sorry, like, that is the change. You know, if you're doing like a science experiment, you know, that is the variable was the U.S. invasion. Had the U.S. not invaded? the Taliban would still be in power. The same, the same exact situation that we have today without the hundreds of thousands of deaths. I mean, and also and a, and a, and without them having, destroyed. and also yeah. without them having all of this uh, weaponry that we yes. uh, provided to the now yes. defunct Afghan um, national army. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, before we get to more details and actually take a little bit of a deep dive into uh, Afghanistan, why don't we give Verso some love? Absolutely. Well, you can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, including the Verso Comrade tote bag. For as long as you are a subscriber, all memberships are 50% off for your first three months. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month. And if you join in August, you'll get these four books. A World Without Police, How Strong Communities Make Cops Obsolete by Gio Meyer. Investigative Aesthetics, Conflicts and Commons in the Politics of Truth by Matthew Fuller and Ayala Wiseman. And The Age of Precarity, Endless Crisis as an Art of Government by Dario Gentili. And a new edition of The Origin of the Family, Private Property and the State by Friedrich Engels. With a new introduction by Jennifer Doyle. Love it. Everyone go check out Verso, one of our supporters, uh, partners, and also a great way to get a bunch of books for a low, low price. Hell yeah. All right. Uh, Well, let's get back to Afghanistan, uh, because today I not only want to focus on a deep dive regarding our involvement in Afghanistan, but also I want to talk about how that particular war, just like many others, didn't actually create peace. It actually exported terror into that country. Media in the United States seem shocked at how swiftly the Taliban took control of Afghanistan as American troops withdrew from the country. Now, it's worth evaluating the failed U.S.-led war in Afghanistan to really understand what its real objectives were. While the American people were sold this hollow story about building democracy, I mean, the mission was literally called Operation Enduring Freedom. In reality, capitalism and the redistribution of wealth from the bottom to the very top was the main driver and influencer behind the war. But that's not what goons like Tucker Carlson would have you believe, because he thinks that the war in Afghanistan failed for other reasons. Over the past 20 years, for example, Congress has allocated close to a billion dollars to export academic feminism to Afghanistan. Where'd that money go? Well, it went to programs like a two-year's master's degree, 
in gender and women's studies offered at Kabul University, something Afghans apparently never knew they needed. Another U.S. government effort, meanwhile, funded, quote, activities that educate and engage Afghan men and boys to challenge gender stereotypes. Right. They weren't doing that enough. And, of course, always and everywhere, our leaders enforced the most American of all cultural exports, affirmative action. American-funded gender advisors demanded that women compromise at least 10 percent of the Afghan National Army and a still larger proportion of that country's political leadership. Thanks to American-imposed gender quotas, dozens of women ultimately were installed as representatives in Afghan's parliament. How'd that work? Well, the whole thing was a sham, as always. In fact, many of these new female legislators had never been to the provinces they claimed to represent. Almost nobody in Afghanistan liked any of this, by the way. And why would they? As one USAID official conceded in a classified report, quote, focusing on gender made things more unstable because it caused revolts. It caused revolts. But officials kept doing it. They kept pushing radical gender politics anyway because they could because they were in charge of these Stone Age people they were going to educate. Now, of course, the war in Afghanistan didn't fail because the United States was exporting gender politics. But it did fail in that we did export weapons that lead to more of what the United States government claimed they wanted to prevent in countries like Afghanistan, terror. So look, right-wing populists tend to center, center their critiques on identity-related matters rather than how profit motives uh, in American foreign policy uh, toward countries like Afghanistan are really to blame for all of these failures, all of the suffering that we're now seeing on the ground in the country. In fact, America's desire to defeat Soviet control of Afghanistan is actually what empowered the Taliban in the first place. To be, to be fair, we had helped to create the problem we're now fighting. How? Because when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, we had this brilliant idea that we were going to come to Pakistan and create a force of Mujahideen, equip them with Stinger missiles and everything else to go after the Soviets inside Afghanistan. And we were successful. The Soviets left Afghanistan. And then we said, great, goodbye, leaving these trained people who were fanatical in Afghanistan and Pakistan, leaving them well-armed, creating a mess, frankly, that uh, at the time we didn't really recognize. We were just so happy to see the Soviet Union fall, and we thought, okay, fine, we're, we're okay now. Everything's going to be so much better. Now you look back, the people we're fighting today, we were supporting in the fight against the Soviets. Man, it is kind of nice to see Hillary Clinton have a moment of clarity and complete honesty in that interview. Uh, and, you know, it's worth exploring the profit motives behind the war and how these incentives actually make the world less safe by exporting, not ending, terror. Americans were sold uh, all sorts of deceptions about the need to invade Afghanistan from the very beginning. First, they were told it was all about bringing Osama bin Laden to justice after the tragic events of 9-11. But then when the Taliban actually offered, they literally offered to hand over Osama bin Laden to a third country so the United States could try him to make sure he was guilty of the crimes he was being accused of. The Bush administration said, no, we're not going to take that offer. 
On October 14th of 2001, ABC News reported that the United States rejected yet another offer by Afghanistan's ruling Taliban to turn over Osama bin Laden for trial in a third country if the U.S. presents evidence against bin Laden and stops their air attacks. We were already doing airstrikes at that point. Now, when explaining the administration's rejection of that reasonable offer, Bush made clear that he didn't believe in undergoing any process that determined without a reasonable doubt that bin Laden was the mastermind. And to be clear, bin Laden was the mastermind. We know that. Uh, So we should go through a process by an independent country that uh, determines that so he can be brought to justice. Bush wasn't interested in that because his administration was far more interested in going even further than just airstrikes in Afghanistan. Instead, Bush wanted to go to war. Bush deployed some 2,500 U.S. troops into the country, causing the Taliban to abandon Kabul and soon thereafter Kandahar, their main stronghold. The Taliban were a broken force at that time. They gave up barely without a fight and melded back into society and retreated into villages. Some Taliban commanders actually offered to surrender in return for amnesty, but the U.S. declined that offer and wanted to keep fighting them. They wanted to stamp out every last terrorist from Afghanistan. Instead, the Taliban regrouped in Pakistan, where they received shelter and support with the aim of returning later. And as we all know, the Taliban did in fact return later, slowly uh, gaining ground throughout the two decades America was literally fighting the war. It's incredible. In fact, even after Osama bin Laden had been captured, assassinated by the United States government under both um, uh, under the uh, Obama administration, uh, both Obama and Donald Trump decided to keep troops on the ground. The United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. May 1st, 2011, Osama bin Laden, the man held responsible for the 9-11 attacks, was killed. And around that period, the number of U.S. troops in Afghanistan hit a peak of around 100,000. The policymakers and experts began to question the effectiveness of that large military presence. What became clear was that the U.S. counterinsurgency strategy did not eradicate the Taliban. In fact, some of the more controversial tactics that the U.S. used in Afghanistan, such as night raids and arbitrary detentions and airstrikes that sometimes killed civilians, created discontent in local communities and actually helped the Taliban recruit more fighters. Now, again, the whole argument of troops on the ground in Afghanistan was that we need to build democracy. This is a nation building exercise. And so the United States worked to prop up uh, the Afghan, Afghan government, right, as the response, as the substitute for the Taliban. But the facts on the ground showed that the United States actually wasn't making any progress. The Afghan security forces were plagued by problems that continued to haunt them, such as corruption, which made them uh, an ineffective fighting force against the Taliban, who continued to fight allegedly armed and funded by Pakistan. The Afghan government has acknowledged problems with effectiveness and corruption among its security forces, but told the journal that corruption is decreasing. And Pakistan's government has denied backing the Taliban, but says it has some limited influence over the group. 
And the weaknesses of the U.S.-propped Afghan government were even more apparent this year. And the Taliban was quickly gaining ground in Afghanistan. It was easy. It was so easy to read the tea leaves. It was clear that the United States had failed in this mission because the mission of nation building wasn't the real intention in the first place. Again, it was easy to read the tea leaves. On July 4th, 2021, U.S. troops finally left Bagram, their main base of operations in the country. Meanwhile, the Taliban's expansion accelerated. And so we come to our current situation as U.S. troops have pulled out and you see uh, scenes that are chaotic on the ground in Afghanistan. You see people trying to flee. The Taliban has taken complete control of the country. Uh, Just last weekend, they took control of the capital, Kabul. And so um, Afghans, uh, you know, certainly saw the United States as an occupying force because the country had been occupied by U.S. soldiers for two decades. There was no clear indication that the Taliban was losing power. In fact, they had gained power over those last uh, last two decades. And so the war was a failure from the perspective of working people. Uh, but the point of the war, again, was to redistribute taxpayer money here in the United States, to the very profitable corporations, which is why two decades and $2 trillion later, we have nothing to show for in in Afghanistan. In fact, all the United States did do was export terror by offering training and funneling weaponry to the Taliban. Now, they did it in an indirect way, but let me show you what I mean when I discuss the profit motives at, at, at play here. There was a great piece written in The Intercept by John uh, Schwartz, and he argues that uh, those who invested in defense stocks in uh, the Afghanistan war actually got pretty significant returns. $10,000 invested in defense stocks when the Afghanistan war began are now worth almost $100,000. Let me give you a few snippets from this piece because it gives you a sense of how these defense contractors ended up outperforming the stock market. For instance, if you purchase $10,000 of stock evenly divided among America's top five defense contractors on September 18th, 2001, and faithfully reinvested all dividends, it would now be worth $97,295. This is a far greater return than was was available in the overall stock market over the same period. $10,000 invested in an S&P 500 index fund on September 18th of 2001 would now be worth $61,613. Now, the piece argues uh, that these numbers suggest that the war in Afghanistan was not a loss for some. And the people who actually won in this war are the very corporations that financially benefited from it. From the perspective of some of the most powerful people in the United States, it may have been an extraordinary success, notably the boards of directors of all five defense contractors include retired top-level military officers. And I do think that it's worth looking at a few of these defense contractors specifically to see what kind of returns their shareholders got during the two decades long failed war in Afghanistan. Why don't we take a quick look at Boeing, for instance? The total return for Boeing, if someone invested $10,000 in the beginning of the war, 
is 975%, nearly 975%, an annual annualized return of 12.67%, meaning that if you invested $10,000 in Boeing back in 2001, that purchase today will yield you 107,588 bucks. It's insane. And uh, as one more example, why don't we uh, take a look at what kind of contracts Boeing got as a result, government contracts Boeing got as a result of the Afghanistan war. Boeing's in situ subsidiaries uh, secured a three-year, $71 million contract from the U.S. Navy to produce eight Scan Eagle unmanned aerial systems for Afghanistan through a foreign military sales agreement. Look, $71 million is not that much money in the grand scheme of things. My point in giving you that specific example is that throughout the entirety of uh, the two decades long war, these are the types of government contracts defense contractors were able to secure. And those, that money was uh, returned to shareholders in the form of dividends, in the form of the stock value or the share values, I should say, increasing. Northrop Grumman is another example of that. The total return for investors of Northrop Grumman, 1,196%. It's incredible. So if you uh, invested $10,000 in uh, Northrop Grumman stock back in 2001 at the beginning of the war, uh, you would see that money grow to a whopping $129,644.84. So it gives you a sense of how profitable war is, not just for the shareholders, but the executives of these um, of these corporations, of these companies. They have a literal financial interest in engaging in these forever wars, which is why I would argue we continue to have boots on the ground even after the United States assassinated Osama bin Laden. Remember, the whole point of you know going into Afghanistan was to bring Osama bin Laden to justice for being the mastermind of 9-11. After we did that, why were we still there? And it was because of the profit motive. And not only did it enrich these defense contractors, it also helped the very group that we were allegedly fighting in this quest for freedom. Just absolutely hollow nonsense that no one should have bought into. Now, uh, so with the complete collapse of the Afghan National Army, All of that weaponry is in the hands of the very people the United States military was fighting in the first place. In a recently overrun army base in northern Afghanistan, Taliban show off captured heavy weapons and ammunition. At times, the Taliban claiming wins without firing a shot. In Tahir province, a whole column of up-armoured American-made Afghan army Humvees are surrendered by government soldiers to the Taliban. The soldiers dump their guns in a pile, a valuable boost for the Taliban, who are fighting hundreds of miles from their heartland in the south and east. So that sophisticated weaponry is now in the hands of the very group that we were supposed to be fighting. And... They're also selling some of that weaponry on the black market. Look, a lot of the U.S. military intervention that gets cheerleaded on cable news actually exports more terror. It destabilizes regions. And one might want to ask themselves whether that's intentional. 
because it perpetuates more war. It creates this never-ending cycle of U.S. intervention, which Americans get told is nothing more than us trying to spread freedom and democracy. That's what we genuinely care about. I mean, yes, we have cozy relationships with Saudi Arabia and other countries that are led by dictatorial regimes, but let's just ignore that and pretend as though the U.S. government cares about spreading democracy elsewhere. It's absolute garbage. So uh, the Associated Press uh, gave us some more details about the kind of weaponry that is now in the hands of the Taliban. Built and trained at a two decades cost of $83 billion, Afghan security forces collapsed so quickly that the ultimate beneficiary of the American investment turned out to be the Taliban. They grabbed not only political power, but also U.S. supplied firepower, guns and ammunition, helicopters and more. In fact, the 83, just to give you a sense, let's juxtapose this to what Americans are getting at home. The $83 billion invested in Afghan forces over 20 years is actually slightly more than what Washington budgeted last year for food stamp assistance for about 40 million Americans. I don't know. I feel like that money could have been better used at home, especially since all we did was create more of a problem in Afghanistan. Now, uh, experts told Vice, uh, Vice World News, that rapidly falling weapons prices were evidence that the captured weapons uh, that the Taliban now has were being sold on the regional black market, of course, to be used in all sorts of nefarious ways. Already, prices are dropping on the American-style M4 assault rifles and other weapons systems widely distributed uh, to the Afghan National Army, said Dubai-based security researcher, uh, a Dubai-based security researcher studying the question on contract uh, for regional governments who asked not to be named. He also says that the endless stockpiles of weapons seized by the Taliban as they took over the country will end up on regional markets because collectively Afghanistan is already awash in light and medium weapons. Another concern, by the way, for the region will be the status of the American-supplied Air Force. Not only do they have weaponry, they have other military materials, uh, other mil military gear uh, that they could either sell in the black market or use for themselves. Um, in Mazar Sharif, for instance, Taliban fighters could be seen examining UH-60 Black Hawk helicopters at an A-29 Tucano attack plane. But with those planes relatively complex to operate, the real prize for the Taliban will be the MI-17 Russian-made transport helicopters that have been long operated in the region. So now all of those sophisticated weapons that the Taliban did not have before we invaded Afghanistan are being sold on the black market and they're being used by the Taliban themselves. And this is not the only way the United States exports terror, because we have a for-profit model when it comes to our foreign policy. And that's a huge issue. Now, I want to give you another case, but it's certainly related to the point that I'm trying to make right now. Remember Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post journalist who was dismembered and obviously murdered um, at a, at a, uh, in, in Istanbul a few years ago during the Trump administration. Well, we're learning more about the individuals who murdered him and where they got their training from. 
for Saudis, for instance, who participated in the 2018 killing of Jamal Khashoggi, received paramilitary training by the Arkansas-based security company Tier One Group, which is owned by the private equity firm uh, Cerberus Capital Management in the United States, the previous year under a contract approved by the State Department. I mean, they got to make some money or to trade some Saudis. That's totally fine. Not a big deal as long as they're getting that nice dinero. And uh, the instruction occurred as a as the secret unit responsible for Khashoggi's killing was beginning an extensive campaign of kidnapping, detention, and torture of Saudi citizens ordered by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi Arabia's de facto ruler, to crush dissent inside the kingdom. Mm. Operation Enduring Freedom. That's what we're all about, folks. Now, the bloated defense budget, uh, of course, funds this garbage. Tier One Group was founded to train U.S. military personnel, taking advantage of an expanded Pentagon budget for military personnel training in basic counterinsurgency skills. But look, I mean, maybe, maybe we're being a little unfair. Maybe we're sitting back and we're looking at things in retrospect. It's real easy to do that. I mean, who could have seen all of this coming? Well, back in 1961, the United States President Eisenhower saw it coming. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Had to do this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development. Yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. By the military-industrial complex. Those warnings uh, should have been taken seriously. But when you live under a capitalist system where profit motive reigns supreme, where profit motives take priority over human lives, including the lives of people in your own country, these are the kinds of decisions that one can expect. And these are the kinds of decisions that are likely to happen again in the future as long as there is a profit motive behind endless wars. And it's not just the Afghan people who are suffering the consequences of that today as a result of our weaponry being distributed to uh, the very group of people that we were supposed to be fighting in the first place. The people of America suffer as well as our bloated defense budget continues to get more and more funding, more and more approval for appropriations from Congress year in, year out. And all of those other social programs that people desperately rely on, they continue to be at stake. There are proposals to cut them. 
And honestly, no one wins except for a small group of people at the very top who are incentivized for more and more war. Nando. The Eisenhower speech is always remarkable to to revisit um, how politicians used to speak. I, I always find it, you know, to imagine a politician saying that today is is just crazy. But um, I, I think like the important thing to understand is, um, you know, as you pointed out, the the incentives for the perpetuation of war are always going to be there once the war starts. It's, it's, it's relatively difficult to, for them to start the war, but then once it starts, you know, the, the gravy train is rolling baby. And it's really hard to stop it once, once it does. And that's, that's just, and, and, and you see how effective they are at populating the important locuses of power. Um, in order to keep it going, whether it's the think tanks, which they get cushy, you know, think tank jobs, um, whether it's the media, they often get cushy media jobs. Uh, just look at, I mean, CNN at any given moment, it, it, the the amount of like former, you know, CIA generals, NATSEC types that are that are just on the payroll is is insane. Um, and then the, this 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 just the very idea that our quote unquote defense industry is private. Is something, mm-hmm. you know, something that uh, Danny Bessner talks about a lot. It's just like, it's just so incompatible with any form of <laughs> democratic governance in any meaningful way. I mean, all of these companies have essentially one client, the U.S. government. So then what's the point of, you know, the privatization of it? Like if they only have one client, like, you know, something like 90% of their revenue comes from the U.S. government, mm-hmm. then that's just... That's just a brazen, just a transfer of wealth from public to private hands. I mean, there's just no other justification for it. You know, like on some level, if there was multiple clients and they're competing and all that stuff, like, okay, okay, I get it. But they're not even doing that. They're just, they just have one client and that's all they're getting. So the privatization of of war, which is, which has been, you know, started decades ago, but has accelerated dramatically um, in recent years, uh, creates a... Uh, just a incredibly uh, robust uh, infrastructure of power to maintain wars, to um, fight clandestine wars that we don't even hear about half the time mm-hmm. that cost a bunch of money and, and, you know, manpower and, and weapons and all that stuff. Um, and, and, and that's why the, the war machine rolls on. I mean, it's not that like the entire system, I mean, the entire system does benefit in some way from, from, from the main maintenance of the empire, but the 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 narrow uh, profit interests that it's just like once they get in the door, you can't get them out. They're like a house mm-hmm. guest that you just can't get out of your house because they just have they they just know how to they know how to nuzzle in there and stay there forever. Totally, and it's look, it's a vicious cycle because the narrow interests that we're talking about here are interests, but like. They're the top moneyed interests. So when you look at the lobbying that they do on a yearly basis, but of course, especially during an election year, I mean, they're the top industry in terms of uh, campaign donations to various politicians, both Democrat and Republican. And so what that does is, of course, corrupt the politicians. We know that, but it influences their own decision making into uh, whether or not we engage in these wars, uh, whether we intervene or not. And it's not just the campaign donations. Remember, I'm going to keep repeating this because this blows my mind 
every time I think about it, members of Congress are allowed to invest in individual stocks. So yeah. if you're a shareholder for Boeing or for Northrop Grumman and some sort of conflict emerges and there's a question about whether or not the United States should get involved, they're going to want to get involved because they're going to see a return on their investment. It should absolutely be banned. Okay. Members of Congress should not be invested in any individual stocks, period. I remember when, when Trump bombed Syria, we talked about it earlier, the, it wasn't just the media that went, you know, fully in lockstep, but uh, the stock prices for all of these defense manufacturers just went through the roof, like through the roof. Um, It's, it's, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to not, not to sound like one of those guys where it's like, it's the corporations, man. But like, kind of is it 100 percent, absolutely all right nando uh let's switch gears a little bit before we get to our guest and talk about what nabisco workers are up to well yes they are on strike and labor is on the march and it's being driven by our insatiable desire for snacks that's right because of the pandemic americans are eating more snacks than ever before With Americans stuck at home, snack food has become a valuable commodity for the pandemic-stressed consumer. Frito-Lay, a subsidiary of PepsiCo and one of the largest snack food makers, has seen sales surge. The company produces over 1,200 different snacks, including brands like Cheetos, Doritos, Lay's, Smart Food, and Ruffles. In early 2021, Frito-Lay North America announced 2020 fourth quarter net revenue of $5.4 billion, a 5% increase from a year earlier. From a product perspective, variety seems to be uh, very important. Um, People are uh, seeking more snacks. They're snacking 40% more right now than pre-pandemic. The snacking industry, uh, you know, was kind of growing low to mid single digits, humming right along. And then the pandemic just gave it this explosive growth with the stay-at-home trends. And it's not just Frito-Lay that is seeing a boom in its snack business. North American sales of savory snacks like chips, popcorn, and pretzels climbed to $56.9 billion in 2020, 11% more than 2019. In stressful times, people turn to snacking for comfort. And COVID-19 has transformed kitchens across the U.S. into giant vending machines. You know, I didn't think Americans could snack even more, but we're snacking even more. We love our snacks, people. We simply cannot get enough of the snacks. And you know which one is the king of all the snacks? Well, it's America's favorite cookie, the Oreo cookie. Oh, 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 who's that kid with the Oreo cookie? Licking up the creamy middle like she did when she was little. It's hard to hide the kid inside when you're crunching O-R-E-O. Now, folks, I love a good Oreo cookie. And let me be perfectly clear. I love the classic Oreo cookie. None of this double stuff nonsense or worse, the cherry cola flavored Oreos. But the twin effects of the increased snack consumption and labor shortage driven by the pandemic have made it so that the bosses over at Nabisco, the company that makes Oreos, put the squeeze on their workers. And on August 10th, workers in the Portland, Oregon factory went on strike. Workers at the Nabisco Bakery in Northeast Portland held a rally today to support their strike against the company. Baker workers walked off the job on Tuesday demanding a fair contract. Today they were joined by members of the AFL-CIO and other union groups. 
The workers are asking for a better contract amid fears of jobs being moved out of the country. Some of the things that would drastically change everybody's lives here, they've done so uh, by closing plants across the nation already, U.S. bakeries that are represented by the BCTGM union workers. Uh, they recently closed down Atlanta, Georgia, also Fairlawn in New Jersey. And th there's always the constant threat uh, of us being next. That's right. The Nabisco workers have gone on strike. And since the initial work stoppage in Portland, the strike has spread to Aurora, Colorado, Richmond, Virginia, and Chicago, Illinois, where Nabisco's parent company, Mondelez, is headquartered. And according to a report by Alex Press in Jacobin, Nabisco workers have been working 12 to 16 hour shifts, with some working seven days a week. The workers say the company is pushing for an alternative work week. That's a fun name. A concession that would take away overtime pay for Saturdays and Sundays with time paid at regular rates until a worker hits 40 hours. Regardless of the shift's length or the day of the week, one worker told Huffington Post that the changes would, could amount to a loss of $10,000 a year for some workers. Nabisco is also pushing for a two-tier health care plan, which would slot newer workers into a higher cost deal while also serving to divide the workers within the union. And all of this is coming in the midst of eye-popping profits for Mondelez International, Nabisco's parent company. According to Market Watch, Mondelez International said profit nearly doubled. Profit nearly doubled and revenue increased in the latest quarter as homebound consumers continued to spend on cookies and snacks. The Chicago-based maker of Oreos and Triscuits said profit was $1.08 billion in the second quarter compared with $545 million a year earlier. $1 billion in profit in one quarter, selling cookies and Triscuit crackers. And Mondelez's CEO, a guy named Dirk Van Putt, has spoken about how, in order to get the younger generations to nibble on his delicious snacks, he wants his brands to mean something, man, and to make strides in things like corporate social responsibility and environmental sustainability. In our office, when you when we have Oreos, okay, the my generation just loves Oreo. That's all we know. You've got many different iterations of Oreo that I would have found a, a, as almost sacrilege, but the younger people love. Yes, yes, they 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 do and um um it it's um um i, I think it has to see with uh, where younger people uh, are looking for what's important to them and what a brand stands for what it does for the community what it does for sustainability and so on those are things that are really important for them and and as brands you need to make sure that that is there and so that's why we did something like snacking made right we want to show that as a company more than ever, what we do in ESG is important and that, that we want to do the right thing, especially in these circumstances. You know, that the Bo Burnham joke about bagel bites was true to life than I realized. Now, in that clip, the CEO of Mondelez, that guy Dirk Van Putt, who kind of looks like Darth Vader once he took his helmet off, mentioned Mondelez's initiative called Snacking Made Right which is their push for corporate social responsibility so that millennials and Gen Zers can feel good about themselves when stuffing their face with Oreos and Nilla wafers. Well, I looked up the Snacking Made Right initiative on Mondelez's website, and it's your usual inane pablum about achieving sustainability or whatever, but one thing caught my eye. One of the goals of Snacking Made Right is that by 2025, in four years, they hope to achieve, among other things, quote, 
100% adoption of child labor due diligence across cocoa life communities in West Africa. I mean, that would imply that in today, that today in 2021, they can't say for certain whether the chocolate you eat in a Toblerone came from child labor. Isn't that nice? And snacking made right certainly doesn't say anything about treating the workers here in the United States with any sort of humanity. Vice spoke to a striking Nabisco worker in Richmond, Virginia, and he said, quote, basically, the main thing we're trying to get is a fair contract. During the pandemic, we came in seven days a week. Some people worked every day, 16 hours a day for three months. Nathan Williams, an oiler who has worked at the Nabisco plant in Richmond, Virginia, for more than 30 years, told Motherboard. Williams said that his facility had pushed extra hours onto workers instead of hiring new workers. For them, it's all about finding the cheapest way to make cookies. And what's happening in the Nabisco plants is a trend across the United States during the pandemic. According to Alex Press, quote, the Nabisco strike is another example of a dynamic spreading across the industries in the United States. As employers scramble to staff up, many currently employed workers are subjected to mandatory overtime with bosses seeking to work them to the bone rather than recruit more more people, a potentially costly move when workers are hard to find. In response, some workers are using their increased leverage during a period of employer panic over the tight labor market to push back, demanding better wages and working conditions. And much of the time, those demands are about hours and scheduling. And despite Nabisco's record profits, it has been shutting down plants here in the United States, often moving production out to Mexico. The iconic sign on the top of the Nabisco plant is starting to show its age as the countdown to the plant's shutdown is moving closer to the end. It's a sad moment, and my fellow employees feel the same way, and I wish they didn't do this. Melinda's parents moved from New York to work in the Fairlawn plant in 1958. She followed their tradition for 27 and a half years, and after all that work and dedication, her daily commitment is coming to an end. I got to move on. I have to find another job. It's a good paying job. And a lot of people are going to lose a lot of good paying jobs. It's unfortunate. Some 600 people are losing their jobs. Most of those positions are moving to a plant in Virginia. But many believe the parent company wants to move the cookie plant out of the country. The threat of moving the cookie plant out of, out of the country, of moving production, is one of the biggest obstacles to labor militancy. Here's Alex Press again. Outsourcing is a longstanding concern as Nabisco continues to close operations in the United States while building up plants in Mexico. In 2015, the company told workers at its Chicago factory to accept a 60% pay cut in, in, in pay and benefits or it would lay them off and focus on a newly established operation in Salinas, Mexico. The workers refused the obscene concession, despite receiving rhetorical support from both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton during the 2016 presidential campaign. You know, on the on the campaign trail in New Hampshire, Trump said, quote, I'm not eating Oreos anymore. Wait a minute, wait. Off. Do you like Oreos? The cookies, right? I'm not eating Oreos anymore. Nabisco is closing their plant, a big plant in Chicago, and they're moving it to Mexico. Ford is building a two and a half billion dollar plant in Mexico. Mexico's doing very well. We love Mexico, but they're doing very well. We need leaders that can deal with them. And deal with all the other countries. Well, you'd be surprised that uh, after that wonderful oration and him winning the election, he failed to force Nabisco to reverse its decision. Some 600 workers lost their jobs. And shortly after opening its Salinas plant in 2014, Nabisco signed a union contract that capped the top pay rate at 200 pesos, 
were about $14.90 per day. So think about that. Nabisco, who has to pay American workers about $14, $15, or maybe $20 an hour, can simply move production to Mexico where they can pay workers $14.90 per day. And worst of all, perhaps, is that they're depriving the good people of New Jersey of that delicious cookie smell. One other thing that will disappear is the delightful smell of baking cookies, which tickled the palate and senses with a delicious aroma. If the, the breeze is right, you smell that nice smell. Will you miss that? Yeah, that was, that was nice. That was nice. Now, the labor action at Nabisco has become part of a trend. Just last month, workers at Frito-Lay factories, who were also being ground to dust to feed our insatiable desire for delicious snacks, went on strike as well. The company says, we're shocked they went on strike. How are you shocked? Did you think that we would go to 90 hours before we would hit the streets? Force overtime causes divorces. It caused people to kill themselves that used to work here. Okay, there have been several employees that have killed themselves, okay, that have worked here over the years. Okay, this is a continual thing. It destroys marriages. It destroys families. We have to do something with the suicide shifts because to work 12 hours and be off eight and work 12 hours, you got time, travel time and everything. I said that's a safety risk. Imagine being an employee in here that has not had a day off for five months. That is the reality of what you're seeing. That is the reality of why you're really seeing the picket over here. Four or five years ago, we had a guy. And, man, he, he was working all the time, and, and he uh, stopped off at a rest stop on I-70, and uh, he fell asleep, and, you know, he didn't wake up. company wants to call it a squeeze shift. It's, it, it doesn't squeezing about it. It's suicide. Yeah, the point system is used to fire people. We're getting penalized for taking time off. I've had to cancel so many doctor appointments, dentist appointments, because I could not make them because of the forced overtime. Walking out the plant last second, hey, you're forced over. Things need to change. This is not a way you treat people. Suicide shifts. I just can't, I can't get over that. And one worker who suffered an electric shock at the factory and then was uh, injured was then put under corporate surveillance by Frito-Lay. After leaving the Navy, Brandon Ingram moved home to St. Louis for a job offer he thought would set him up for long-term success. I guess Frito-Lay, you know, who wouldn't want to work for Frito-Lay? In an effort to move up within the company, Ingram says he was working 60, 70, sometimes 80 hours per week at this Frito-Lay warehouse. But October 2nd of 2016, an incident occurred that changed both his personal and professional life forever. I went a little dizzy for a moment. You know, I was like, I'm okay, I'm okay. I think I, you know, I just got zapped a little bit. Realizing he had been electrocuted, a manager took him to the hospital. They was just like, oh, you're good to go. However, it didn't take him long to realize there was something seriously wrong. I am in pain every day. It's excruciating. Diagnosed with two herniated discs and liver disease, he was put on disability. I went from making a nice amount to support my family to, like, barely making it. We had to use everything thus far because Frito-Lay and Pepsi have not helped us. They filed suit and got these videos showing private investigators following them. We actually try to stay in the house with the curtains closed because we're being watched so hard. People shouldn't be treated like this. It really was driving me to where I felt like I needed help. As a last-ditch effort, 
they turned to GoFundMe. This is our last hope. In four days, that account has raised more than $85,000. I'm very, very grateful. I don't have words. I don't know what to say, but thank you. I can't even fathom the words, to be honest. I have a glimmer of hope. Like, I never thought that people would care this much. So after 17 days on strike, a deal was struck between management at Frito-Lay and the union. Well, after 17 days on the picket line, union leaders have come to a tentative agreement with Frito-Lay. We start tonight with this developing story. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brooke Lennington. And I'm Molly Pat. We were first to let you know about the change of, or the chance of a deal right here on KSNT News earlier tonight. Now our Cassie Nichols joins us live to break down what exactly is in that tentative agreement. Cassie, what's the next step in the process? Molly, members of the union will now vote this Friday on whether or not they agree on new contract terms. The new terms took three days of continuous conversations between union leaders and Frito-Lay officials. I spoke with the international union leader tonight. He told me some of the details in the new possible agreement. He says it will address most of the concerns that led to union workers going on strike earlier this month, just after the 4th of July. Concerns like better pay and overtime are addressed in this new contract. But now it's up to the members of the local union to vote on if they agree with the new tentative contract as well. The union members did end up voting to ratify the new contract. And among the terms, one were a 4% increase in pay over two years, as well as an end to the so-called suicide shifts. And what we're seeing here is politics boiled down to its essence. You know, cable news yaps all day about bullshit. And on Twitter, we fight all day about bullshit. And the end of the day, the stuff that really matters is who gets what in the society. And the society happens to be divided between those that own things, i.e. the capitalists or the bourgeoisie or whatever you want to call them, the Dirk Van Putz of the world, and those of us who have to sell our labor to a capitalist in exchange for a wage. The economy produces stuff, and then the fight between capital and labor is basically the fight that decides what share of the pie goes to which side. And in the case of Nabisco, the bosses thought that they could take a few extra cookies from the proverbial cookie jar. They saw record profits, and instead of sharing it with their workers, they wanted to pay themselves in the form of dividends. The workers, meanwhile, were getting squeezed. And the only recourse they had is to use their collective power and strike. In order to coordinate their collective efforts, they needed a union. That's it. That's what it really boils down to. Everything else flows from that. And it was good to see good friend of the show, Danny DeVito, support the strike. He tweeted out, support Nabisco workers striking for humane working hours, fair pay, outsourcing jobs. No contracts, no snacks. Well, hours later, Twitter, and I can't believe I'm saying this, unverified Danny DeVito. They literally thought, hey, it's Danny DeVito, legendary actor from Taxi, LA Confidential, Get Shorty, and Always Sunny. Let's remove his Twitter verification for supporting a labor strike. Well, hours after a major public outroar, Twitter re-verified Danny DeVito. Thank you. And now we can all support the Nabisco strike, which is spreading like a nice Oreo filling. Hopefully, one of the demands is no more novelty Oreo hookie flavors. No to carrot cake Oreos. No to caramel coconut Oreos. No to hot and spicy cinnamon Oreos. And by God, no to kettle corn Oreos. Yes, they have popcorn flavored Oreos. And that's wrong. It's just, it's just so unnecessary. Um, but you know, I've never tried the cherry cola Oreo. So I feel like maybe I, I can't be closed minded until I try Nando. 
you're a good person. I I'm a I'm like I'm a I'm like a Taliban fundamentalist when it comes to Oreos. No, you know, I only I the actually, original. I actually a hundred percent agree with you. I don't even like double stuffed Oreos. Uh, you're oh. an American hero for saying that. Thank uh, you. <laughs> no, but this is. This is such a great segment. I did not know that Danny DeVito had been unverified as a result of uh, showing solidarity to the striking <laughs> workers. It's just so sick. Um, so gross. Ugh. And by the way, I just got word that our very own Kale Brooks also dislikes the double stuffed Oreos. <laughs> breaking news. Uh, breaking yeah. news. Um, but to get to you know my serious thoughts on this story, um, I think the heart, like your, your main thesis here is correct, right? If you have a union backing you, if you have the protection necessary to strike, you're able to essentially go against your employer and demand better. And those suicide shifts are obviously untenable. People can't work like that. Uh, I think it's a very intentional strategy to pit workers against one another by ensuring that the new hires uh, don't receive the same healthcare benefits as the um, workers who had been there already. Uh, it's just a way to sow discontent and uh, conflict among workers, and they love that. Uh, so I-, I love that they're showing solidarity with new hires and and fighting together for better working conditions and better pay. Um, and then finally, I'm glad that you included the video of the man who had been electrocuted on the job, because it shows you that you know in again. It, it, It's a theme that applies to so many different topics that we discuss on this show. When there are profit motives at play, those profit motives will always take priority over the health, safety, and lives of the workers. The workers are there to be essentially for the the capitalists to extract as much labor as humanly possible, right? Spend as little money on the workers to increase the profits. And that, again, is the fiduciary responsibility of the company to the shareholders. This is not an accident. This is how the system is built. Yeah. Yeah. I think that one of the things to watch as we emerge from the pandemic is that the pandemic um, may have changed um, some of the labor outlook for a lot of people in in the United States Um, working from home. Uh, or staying home for a while, receiving pretty generous government benefits in the context of the United States. Um, and, you know, this 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 labor shortage that people are talking about, it may may cause a change in the declining militancy of of labor that we've seen that has been steady, you know, for decades. You know, I'm not going to like I'm not, I don't want to predict the future, and I don't want to get overly optimistic. But um, you know, at some point that that trend needs has to change. It, it has to start mm-hmm. going back up. Like labor militancy will eventually, um, you know, take back up. And maybe this pandemic was the inflection point um, because we are seeing more and more uh, uh, militancy from labor. I mean, they're still haven't achieved huge gains. Um, it's not like how it was in the 1930s, uh, but they're the seeds of something there. So that's a story we'll be watching for sure. Absolutely. Well, uh, this is also a great topic to discuss with our guest. So... Joining in, joining us now is Branko Milanovic. Uh, he is a senior scholar at the Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality, perfect for the discussion that we just had. Also the author of many books, including Capitalism Alone, The Future of the System That Rules the World, which will be out on paperback on September 7th. Branko, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. 
why don't we start off by uh, getting your thoughts on the, you know, Nabisco strike that Nando just did uh, his segment on and the possibility of the labor shortage in the United States uh, leading to, uh, you know, some labor militancy, uh, something that we desperately need. Well, thanks a lot, Anna. Actually, I enjoyed very much the the part that Nando was discussing. Actually, to tell you the truth, I really didn't even know there was a strike going on, but it was really very well covered and very well explained. Now, uh, let me say at, at the very end what Nando mentioned, and I think it is really a basic issue, is that you have obviously two large groups of people. In the past, they were clearer than now. I will come to that in a minute. But you have people who actually have lots of ownership and capital, and obviously they are the owners of the companies. And as you said, it was not an accidental effect that actually, obviously, the owners of the companies try to extract as much as they can from workers. And then you have another very large group of people who actually don't have ownership, and they have to sell their labor. So this is, uh, I think, uh, the, the, the basic issue. Uh, the fact is that nowadays, however, you have more people than in the past who are somewhere in between, who actually might actually become capitalists because they have very high wages and then they save. And later, they, of course, they invest and they basically become, you know, originally they might not have been part of this capitalist class, but they become the capitalist class where in the past really it was harder to do that. Uh, so that was my first uh, reflection. The second one is that you mentioned uh, militancy. <clears throat> Again, I, I hope it's the case. But as your segment said itself, the dif- difference now compared to the 1930s is the ability to shift production easily outside of the United States, which was not the case, you know, 50 years ago. Yeah. No, it's 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 one of the it's one of the you know central questions of our time is just the you know there's sort of national identities you know workers feel more you know akin to their you know in their national identities but companies have no no loyalty at all so they can move easily uh, not not beyond loyalty they have they have the actual technical capacity to do it um, through increased shipping lanes um, you know this is this is the reality that we live in um, and I think that um, one of the uh, one of the one of the things that have has emerged post 2008 is this feeling that there's been a kind of loss of belief in in the system in capitalism neoliberalism whatever that that people don't buy into it as much as they did say in the 1990s um yet it yet it endures and 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 it it seems in a way stronger than ever despite a sort of loss of faith in it um and in your your book title capitalism alone um seems to me to indicate that, you know, capitalism is the only mode of production in the world right now. There is no Soviet Union. There is no alternative, you know, threatening it. What what amount, what accounts for capitalism's ability to defend itself or to perpetuate itself um, despite what seems like a, a series of crises that that in, would, have, would have threatened it um, and, and a sort of loss of faith in it? Well, you know, first, actually, uh, I agree with what you said, that particularly among young people, and this is not something that is my opinion, simply because if you look at the surveys, of course, the the confidence that they have in capitalism has declined. And I think it has declined because of the financial crisis. It, I think to some extent it might have all, all also declined because of the current crisis that we are living through. Uh, and the realization, as you said before, that, of course, capitalist companies are not uh, really... In reality, they are not American companies. They can be companies anywhere in the world. 
you know, even Adam Smith mentioned that actually, you know, the capital owner is uh, basically a person who can move his capital wherever he wants, and he's not really beholden to a given country necessarily. Uh, workers are different because obviously they have to live here. They have actually friends and family. They cannot just simply take off. Now, uh, when you mentioned the title of the book, yes, the title of the book essentially means that there, this is the only mode of production existing now. That does not mean that historically things cannot change. After all, we have had different capitalisms, and we do have different capitalisms right now. Of course, one of the objectives of the book is also to situate China as a capitalist country, and I will not go into that why I believe there, like if you look at the objective criteria, China is indeed a capitalist country. But uh, you have uh, differences between different types of capitalism. You know, capitalism in Germany is not the same as in the U.S. In the U.S. it's not the same in Mexico. Mexico is different from China. So we do have a variety. So I don't think that actually accepting the fact that capitalism is the only game in town means essentially that you can do nothing. Okay, so I actually do want you to elaborate on that a little more because I think it's um, a fascinating point. So, you know, you write about, um, you know, liberal meritocratic uh, meritocratic uh, capitalism that's embodied in the United States uh, and then uh, political capitalism. Uh, can you can you talk about the differences and how they compete with one another? What are they competing for? You know, they are, of course, uh, and it's actually it's a good point is that in my whole chapter is I spend it on China. And the reason, without going into too many details, but the reasons I argue that China is capitalist is that you have most of the production done with, you know, capitalist sector. In, in other words, like in this country, you have most of the production done on privately owned means of production. You have hired, you hire labor force that are workers. And in that sense, China is not very much different. However, politically, it is different. And we see it today. And I don't want to say that, of course, I predicted that two years ago when I did a book, but we see today ability of Chinese government to actually crack down when it wants to on uh, some very large private sector companies, as, you know, the, the case of Ant and Alibaba and Tencent more recently, uh, have been developments that uh, might happen in the U.S. with anti-monopoly you know, different, you know, legal suits that are now going on, but it will simply take much longer here than there. So in that sense, you know, you see the power of the state in China being much greater, despite the fact that it's a capitalist country. Yeah, I, I was, I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, and you've written about that in, on your Substack. the, um, these, these, these crackdowns from, from the Chinese state on, on some of their, on some of their tech sector. And I, I, I was, I was kind of interested in how it was covered here in the United States um, and how China generally is covered in the United States, um, especially in recent years, as, you know, I think a lot of pe- a lot of people in the American elite sphere are very freaked out by the fact that China is going to surpass uh, the United States in GDP um, very soon. Um, can you can you talk about what, those reforms and, and why the Chinese state does it and, and why the U.S. finds that finds them so repellent? You know, Nando, you know, what I find interesting in this particular case recently with China is that you have a slightly kind of a schizophrenic approach here. Everybody has been talking for a long time that China's inequality is extremely high. Actually, if you look at the numbers, China's inequality is higher than inequality in the U.S. 
Uh, okay, part of that is because there are really huge poverty pockets which exist in the rural areas. Nevertheless, the difference between Shanghai and you know Western China is enormous. So the inequality is a, a really big issue in China. Now, in these recent moves, which I actually see as twofold moves, and you know this is not my original view, but the first one is to crack down at these high tech companies. In other words, to show them they cannot be monopolists and they cannot be more important than the state. And secondly, to try to achieve what they call common prosperity. So why I feel this schizophrenic attitude? Because people, by focusing on Chinese inequality, were rightly criticizing that inequality. But what I think the government in China is doing now is actually trying to control that inequality or to reduce it. And in that sense, I see that as a positive development. However, the same people who regret or sort of deplore inequality then are now criticizing these moves. So I think in that sense, it is a little bit schizophrenic. You actually have to decide if you really believe that inequality should be reduced or if you really just say that from time to time when you have a Davos meeting and then when there is a crackdown on Tencent or Alibaba, then you complain about it. You know, that reminds me of what uh, some of the defenders of capitalism use as an argument here in the United States in order to maintain the system. And, uh, you know, one person who comes to mind is Senator Elizabeth Warren, for instance, who uh, essentially argues that, you know, the problem isn't capitalism itself. She identifies as a capitalist. But the, the real problem is the crony capitalism. It's the corruption that's allowed to take place uh, in America. That's really what takes this wonderful system and taints it. Uh, but I think, you know, you do a good job in helping people understand that it's not really the bug, it's the feature. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, I agree. And actually, you said that before when you discussed, uh, you know, the strikes and the fact that you actually you said it yourself. Like, it is a feature because, you know, that contrast or conflict between labor and capital is not something which is, you know, but it is not the issue of corruption is a separate issue, and I'll come to that in a minute. But the feature of the system is you have a given pie, and that pie has to be divided between labor and capital. And we know that that pie, the, the share which belongs to capitals, to capital, capital owners rather, in the United States has been rising in the last 30 years. So we know that this is actually, you know, in papers, it's, it's a fact. And that feature has been in the system since the beginning of the system. As I said before, it doesn't mean that the pie which belongs to labor is fixed. It could a part of the pie that is, is not fixed. You know, it can be increased, and labor militancy is one of the ways of doing it. Now, when it when it comes to corruption, we are, it's very easy to be against corruption because practically nobody is going to say that they are in favor of corruption. But, you know, you have accumulation of enormous wealth, which we have seen now even during the crisis, as, you know, many good examples. And while it is not corruption per se, the political power which is owned by these people is enormous. And in that sense, you know, they may not have, uh, uh, you know, made that money illegally. Certainly, in most cases, they have not. But it, it really uh, gives them a political power with which they can actually affect the system, whether through political process, lobbying, control of the media. We know, for example, lots of media which is owned by very rich people, including the richest person in the world, owning probably the second uh, most influential newspaper in the United States. So this is the, the, the power, which is really not corruption per se, but it's really very much related to the wealth that they have. 
Are we living in uh, in one of the most unequal periods in history? Are we living in the most unequal? Where where do we stand in in the in the pantheon of inequality right now? No, we are not really because of the reasons that poor countries like China and India, Indonesia, Vietnam, and others have now really become you know not middle income countries, but actually much better off than they used to be like thirty years ago. So in that sense, we are not living in a most unequal period in the world. Because people, or the countries rather, which with many people, have become uh, less poor than they used to be. Like, let me give you a simple example. If you look at U.S., China, and India, and you know these three countries represent almost fifty percent of the population. I think forty-five percent of the population, about forty-five percent of the GDP nowadays. But the gaps between the U.S. on the one hand and India and China in 1950 or 1960 were really enormous, and that really determined global inequality. Nowadays, these gaps are less. So global inequality has shrunk, but inequalities within each individual country, if you take China or India or the U.S. or Germany or Sweden or Russia or South Africa, actually, very interesting case because inequality increased after the end of the apartheid. So within countries, these inequalities have gone up. And since our view is mostly to look at actual inequality of the place where we live, we are, of course, perceiving rightly, I, think, I would say so, inequality is being really on an up, up, uh, you know, uptrend, I mean, uh, uh, rising trend. You know, one thing that I've been wanting to get clarity of on is uh, what we're seeing the Federal Reserve do here in the United States, which has only exacerbated inequality uh, within our borders. And I mean, to be fair, uh, the... Federal Reserve in the United States has uh, quite a bit of influence on central b- banks, um, you know, across the globe. And so, uh, one strategy that was utilized following the 2008 economic cl- uh, crash is something known as quantitative easing. And so, uh, that's when, you know, essentially, uh, it's a monetary policy where the central bank purchases uh, predetermined amounts of government bonds. Uh, now they're, they've shifted over to doing so with uh, corporate. Uh, uh, assets. And it's, there's the issue of printing money and uh, offering liquidity to banks and to corporations. They basically put that method on steroids uh, during the coronavirus pandemic as the American people were being nickeled and dimed uh, in regard to uh, financial assistance. And I I want you to weigh in on the long-term impact of this. Like we're already seeing how it's exacerbated inequality. Uh, We're seeing how it's inflated various bubbles. Uh, For instance, in the housing market, uh, that would be a good example. What do you think the outcome of this type of monetary policy will be? And, you know, yeah, that's my question. What do you think? It it is really a super difficult question. I have to say that, uh, you know, I've started understanding the question only relatively recently because it was not an issue before 2007, 2008 crisis, uh, honestly, nobody spoke very much about that because it just was not done in the way that it was done then. As you know, there, there was an enormous support of the of the banking system. And of course, nowadays it was done again with, uh, I think in the U.S., up to 25% of GDP, if we add everything up, actually has been sort of printed ex nihilo, to, 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 you know, for out of nothing, so to speak. Uh, but uh, the importance of that for inequality, I think, is being only understood now because if you actually use a lot of uh, liquidity to maintain the value of assets up, and if you're one of the main concerns that you have, and it was very obvious in the case of Trump, 
it was the stock market. You know, for, for Trump, there was only one variable, so to speak, in his view of the U.S. economy, and that variable was the stock market. So if this is your only variable, and if you want to maintain that variable, uh, sociologically uh, or in terms of inequality, it does have an impact because you're maintaining the values of wealth of people who have assets. Now, if I don't have any asset in the stock market, it really doesn't matter to me at all if the stock market is going to do well or not. But if I have lots of assets, it matters a lot. And that actually, I think, is something that we are seeing much more now and to be quite honest, I'm not really sure how to do, uh, sort of take in, into account very well all of that. But we are seeing that such policies are not neutral at all. Mm-hmm. So they are actually very, uh, if you will, you know, class-based in some sense, because they, they, uh, they increase the gap between those who have assets and those who essentially have labor. You mentioned Vietnam as a uh, a story of of, of relative success. It's a, a country that is now you mentioned almost a middle income country in the world. I, I can't help but notice that um, you know the United States just got out of Afghanistan after a very twenty year war in Afghanistan. The United States also had a very long war in Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam was a very poor country even when the United States uh, started uh, that war, but previously you know occupied by the French and 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 Chinese and you know and the country was utterly destroyed by the United States, millions of people killed, uh, napalm, Agent Orange, all, all of that stuff. What did they do in the period from the 1970s to today to, to build, build, rebuild themselves and to become a, a middle-income country? You know, Vietnam is really an interesting case. Of course, uh, uh, you mentioned uh, people, of course, talk now about Saigon and they talk about Kabul, all that. Of course, the, yeah. the, the, the background, uh, in my opinion, is entirely different. In this, in the other case, you had uh, essentially a well-organized system, which actually, when you say what Vietnam did, I think essentially copied the Chinese success by opening up to the private international markets and also to domestic capitalists and maintaining political control at the central level like like China did. And in that sense, I I don't think that the comparison really carries over because uh, in the case of Afghanistan, you have uh, uh, really a regime that is, you know, I don't want to use very pejorative terms, but it's really kind of a medieval regime. So it has nothing to do with the sort of a communist regime that, you know, took over, uh, unified the two Vietnams and took over Vietnam. So I don't really expect that the Taliban are going to be a, a huge um, economic success case. Uh, now, it is true that actually, I have to, to admit that people didn't expect in 75 that, you know, Vietnam, South Vietnam would be also a success case and North Vietnam was devastated, as, as you said before. Uh, but they were very successful in applying essentially Similar logic that many countries in Asia did, uh, strong state and strong private sector, and uh, reliance, actually very important reliance, it is true, uh, on the United States, because the, the openness of the United States to the exports of China and Vietnam, and before that, South Korea and Taiwan and Japan, was really quite important for the success of those countries. The IPCC recently released uh, yet another terrifying report in regard to climate change and uh, how incredibly destructive it already has been and will be in the near future. How do we respond to climate change, both the United States and China, under a capitalist system? 
You know, I've been in a, a sort of discussion and disagreement with many people uh, who argue in favor of degrowth. I don't want to go into all details about that, but I do believe that growth is absolutely crucial for, uh, you know, for essentially people having better lives. And going back to original segment in your show, without growth and without, the, uh, you know, people working in the Nabisco and other factories, they would not have jobs and they would actually not have things to, you know, look forward to, to uh, you know, to organize their lives. So growth is really quite important. Having said that, I, I would be very much in favor if, if people who really believe that this is the issue of climate change is to use sort of to change a little bit Barack Obama's terms uh, is a defining issue of our time, uh, were to go much more strictly for the measures that could, could make a difference. And I think when it comes to that, it's really a combination between taxation and subsidies, which many people might not like. If you were to increase the price of gasoline to, 10, to $10 a gallon, you know, people are not going to like that, but it would make a difference for climate change. I, I recently wrote about the fact that, uh, you know, that uh, Norway is one of the really large producers of oil, and at the same time, is sort of, uh, you know, contributed quite a lot to preserving the Amazon forests. But, you know, these two things don't go together. So you have actually to decide, do I really care so much about climate change that I should not go and explore Arctic as they are doing now or actually expanding the production and lose some money? Or are you going to pretend that you really care much about uh, climate change and do nothing when it comes to your own income? I want to I wanna close... Um... Uh, with uh, a question that is often asked uh, here in in the halls of Jacobin, um, which is about social democracy in the you know in the middle of the twentieth century, especially especially after World War II, um, the Europe especially and, and other places built up a, a a sort of social democratic system that improved the lives of of, of millions of workers, made capitalism slightly more. Um, humane than it was in in the late nineteenth century and beginning of the twentieth century. Um, can is is can social democracy be rebuilt um or or is it still viable or do we got to try something else you know i actually think that for you younger people it is really something else there are certain parts of social democracy definitely that can be maintained and actually as you said even before you know social democracy started actually also had a us base with you know the the new deal uh, so it was not a sort of a foreign implant. And I just want to mention also that very many people don't realize that historically, U.S. was actually more egalitarian society or less unequal than many European societies. Then, of course, it's changed after World War II when Europe went, if you take Germany, you take Denmark, take UK, France, went into very social democratic society. But some parts of social democracy, I think, are very difficult to replicate partly because of what we were saying at the very beginning, ability to move production outside of the mm. countries, which did not exist in the past, and the ability even of the rich people or high-skilled people, if they don't like taxation in the U.S., to actually go somewhere else. So, you know, these two abilities, which are really linked with globalization and our ability to, to actually move ourselves much more easily, uh, are something which I believe impede the, the simple reproduction of uh, uh, social democratic uh, tools. Now, as I said, there are certain tools like education, health, 
that there is no reason why they cannot be reproduced and actually made much more potent because we are so much richer today than we were in 1950. But there are others where actually I think we would run into problems, including the one that I just mentioned, the, the relative power of labor and capital. Franco Milanovic, uh, as the uh, young kids say these days, you are very based. And thank you for yes. taking the time to have this conversation with us. Uh, I love the breadth of your knowledge and, and how you can really weigh in on so many different issues uh, pertaining to the economy uh, globally. Uh, thank you again for joining us. Everyone, please check out his upcoming book, which will be released on September 7th, Capitalism Alone, the Future of the System that Rules the World. Thank you again, and I hope you'll join us again in the future. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bronco, right. gotta love great. him. Second Bronco we've ever had on the show. Not I know. To be confused with Bronco Marchetich from Jacobin, Bronco Milanovic. You know these uh, uh, these uh, these Balkan econom- these Balkan people. They 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 have some good takes. People are saying that the Balkan people know what they're talking about. I love them. I love my favorite economist (laughs) from the Balkan countries. I love them. I love them. (laughs) They're they're really (laughs) economists. All right. Um, So since we're live, we might have some super chats, although we did a terrible job uh, advertising that we're uh, open to the public. Get get Jacobin's CMO on the phone. Who's the CMO? Uh, (laughs) I need to to give him a piece of my mind. Yeah, I want to say thank you to Bronco again. Uh, appreciate his time. Um, we are live, and um, this is I'm here because we typically take questions at the end. So uh, if either um, people want to send us a question via Super Chat, or if members have questions, they can send them in the live chat right now, uh, and we'll try to get to them. Um, mm-hmm. Cool. But, uh, until, K- until K- then, Kale, you, you're feeling very low energy today. What's going on? You know, you tired? I thought we were, I thought the move to Friday, you know, I have a little extra pep in my step on Fridays. What's going on, Kale? You seem down. Give me a, give me some love. Come on. I, I'm so exhausted. (laughs) What'd you do? Just too many, too many commitments, too many projects. I'm in the, I'm in the mode where I'm like trying to complete everything by the end of August that all of the reading groups, all of the side projects, the little writing gigs I've told myself, the video edits, the um there's like new video things that are coming that people should keep their eyes peeled for so um does that mean going on and it all comes at my expense and that's fine is that why the the intro song is a little off (laughs) (laughs) Um, no what i actually wanted to ask you is so since you're overwhelmed and i totally get you i think all three of us are um i'm not the bad guy right for uh not having begun our reading group. No, 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 no. That's, okay. uh, I was no. feeling guilty about that. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> it's been such a crazy week. So. Yeah, no, we'll just, we'll, we'll, that's not something I'm trying to complete by the end of August. So we'll, uh, we'll get that going pretty soon. Um, and people will maybe hear about that. Um, so we do have a question. I do want to get to these, um, uh, eclectic asks, uh, the media, paying little attention to labor strikes against big corporations, but obsessed with criticizing Biden taking on the military industrial complex on Afghanistan. Is it a conscious choice to run cover for the corpse? Uh, I'm going to say, look, obviously I'm speculating, but as someone who's responsible for putting a rundown together every day for TYT, um, I would say, yeah, I, I do think it's intentional. So uh, we covered the Nabisco strike a few weeks ago. We're covering it again tonight. Um, and 
we know that those videos uh, don't do well in terms of views, in terms of monetizing, but who cares? These are important topics that should be discussed, right? So, but when it comes to corporate media, I mean, you're, you're dealing with a lot more pressure <laughs> on returns, a uh, lot more pressure on, on viewership. And also like, let's keep it real. If you have Nabisco as an advertiser, that might weigh into your decision as to whether or not you include coverage of the strike in your rundown. We do not have Nabisco as an advertiser. Thank God. I don't ever want Nabisco as an advertiser, mostly because I hate live reads and I hate having to like, you know, unless it's Verso, which is wonderful and they actually do good work and they're, you know, trying to put information out there. I think that makes sense. But advertising sucks. So I think that that business model has a huge impact on the types of news stuff, uh, stories that get coverage. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I've worked in the mainstream media uh, in the past. Uh, I've, I know, and like many of the people in the mainstream media, I've worked at big, big news networks, um, television news networks, and uh, I think often it's, it's there's, un, there's a, there's an unconscious bias. I mean, it's what Chomsky said. It's like the, the, you know, the guy sitting in the chair. He's in that chair because of things that he believes already. And they don't like, they don't like instruct you. Um, necessarily when you get in there um, there are then incentives that kick in which is like you know what what stories get rewarded and things like that and what kind of access you need to to tell certain stories so I mean with the um, with the military stuff I mean a huge bias towards uh, government sources just because they're you know they're CIA they're in the CIA and it's like a journalist is like oh my god like I'm talking to a CIA agent and like he's telling me the inside scoop of how it really works you know and even though it's all just lies and propaganda the people right. eat it up because it's it's just like you're like whoa that's so cool I'm talking to a CIA guy so like Richard Engel for example who's NBC's uh, foreign correspondent is considered kind of like a legendary force foreign correspondent he's like all over the world you know he is he is very not happy very not happy with the biden administration and he just tweeted out for example biden says us in constant contact with taliban to get safe passage to airport so us asking former enemy the taliban to please allow us to get our people out while they take the country and it's like yeah dude that's what like what they you know, control like, the country they, they control the country, country. <laughs> like better to just have them be like, yo, let us get our people out safely. Let's not shoot anyone, and uh, and we'll all be good. You know, instead of like, w what? You know, what? 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 What's the alternative? Just going guns, you know, guns blazing and stuff. Like that won't escalate into a horrible situation. Um, and it, it, I, I've just seen it so many, many times. Like, it, it, you, you find a sort of affinity with the people who feed you the information. This is true often in, in, in local news, the, the incentive is to, is to cover the cops in that way because they're, yep. the police departments just feed them a ton of information all the time. So um, yeah. that's why when, when there's any, any coverage of police um, from a local news station, uh, you know, it's, they're just super friendly to their sources because they need them. <laughs> they need them to give them more information in the future for the next story. Same thing in sports journalism. Like if you're the beat writer for, the Miami Dolphins, uh, you're only going to be there if you can continue getting scoops from the Miami Dolphins. So you're not going to say anything that's too um, that's too critical of them. You have to kind of be careful and you'll eventually find some sort of affinity with their struggles and their cause and all that stuff. 
that's a stupid that's a that's a small kind of innocuous way of making the grander point that that's what often happens um with these major news organizations and their dealings with the pentagon or the cia or the uh, state department or whatever big in government institution insert here it's the same exact thing over and over again yeah just a just a way in a little bit more on that um you brought up police departments and local news Ben Mankiewicz uh, shared his personal experience working in in, um, local news, I believe, in Raleigh, North Carolina. But he said that uh, the station had run a story that was slightly critical of the local police department, and they retaliated immediately. And the way that they do it is they stopped inviting that station to their press conferences. They stopped responding to uh, requests for comment. Yeah. there's punishment that comes along with refusing to play ball. And so sometimes I think the influence is pretty overt and sometimes it's a little more, I don't know, subtle, Mm -hmm. good way of putting Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. I mean, I I remember when I was at Univision, um, we ran a very negative story about Marco Rubio and Marco Rubio um, at the time was so mad that he managed to get the national Republican party to, um, boycott Univision, you know, and the pressure was just tremendous at the time. I remember like the pressure from corporate from it was just absolutely brutal at the time. It was very like, I mean, you know, the news department ended up standing firm on it. Um, but but the pressure was enormous uh, at the time. And that's like a that's a that's a much smaller thing. I mean, who gives a shit like the Republican Party for Univision, you know, but, um, you know, imagine if like the Pentagon shuts you out, you know, mm-hmm. forever. Mm-hmm. And they just don't want that. They don't want that at all. Um, or the White House or whatever, whatever big political institution. Like if the White House freezes out one of the f- major news networks, they're toast. Um, right. All the other networks will get the scoops. And then and then what are you going to do? You got no scoops. Um, and that's how the that business that that business runs. So they, they can't do anything to. You know, they, they caught the thing is and what's annoying about and why people hate the media is because they cosplay as like adversarial to these people, like totally. the Jim Acosta thing and the whatever and Tapper and all these people like they're like, you know, they're very tough, very tough, you know, like they're not, you know, at the end of the day, they're not. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that makes I think that makes sense. It's funny. Nando Anna and I were talking about this last night because um you know, the Zonki who does our music is saying it's a good materialist take. So thank you. He did the I, song? I agree. Yeah. Um, oh, cool. He does our theme song. Um, nice. No, I, I mean, I think it makes sense. I, to me, like there's, it's still, there's like one little piece that's still missing. Like I think what Nando's saying to me is to completely, completely makes sense. Like why the media would be like, why they wouldn't be anti-war and why a number of them would be pro-war. But the media it just like as we've seen in the last week, it's just so bloodthirsty that like looking at what Biden's doing and saying this is like a massive mistake that, you know, if you probably ask them like what should happen, they would say like, you know, turn around, reverse course, go back in, like increase the troops immediately. Um, and I I don't know. I think there everything Nando's saying is correct. And I think there is some other kind of like ideological rot that's going on in these people because it is just so deranged. Well, but, totally. I mean, they all um, they all came up. the The current crop um, came up uh, in the uh, during the war on terror. I mean, the war on terror uh, transformed the 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 news media in in many ways. I don't think people understand. 
the ways in which it did. I mean, it was it became a reality show. The invasion of Iraq was a reality. I mean, 9-11 like made Fox News, for example, like Mm -hmm. that was Fox News was unsuccessful until 9-11 happened. Um, It was a struggling network. Um, And, uh, you know, the 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 ride, the ride along that. Um, you know, people at CNN and NBC and all these people got in the early days of the war on terror was it was a joke. I mean, it was like, it was like watching a reality TV show. I remember like, I just remember like during the invasion of Iraq, what was it called? Like a uh, operation, uh, like something. No, no, no. The original (laughs) one, the original one. It was Uh, like the original Iraqi thing was like a, you know, lightning strike or something. It's like something like super lame like that. Um, Like thunder, 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 whatever um and i remember like just some cnn guy riding on a tank as they're like all the tanks are just like storming across the iraqi desert and the cnn guy was like holding onto his hat while covering it live like on a fucking tank like just like having the time of his life you know like it was just was it it, it, was it it operation new dawn no, 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 no. Something else. Oh, that was during the Obama administration. I'm yeah. for it. Okay, yeah. sorry. In the desert. Yeah, it was something like that. Anyway, uh, but it, it the 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 there was a whole generation of journalists that came up uh, um, from from Vietnam, right? And and you know the media's role has been kind of whitewashed uh, in in Vietnam. Uh, like through history, um, like we for, like the media was on board with Vietnam, but then and and then there was this there's this the slight moment of kind of critique that came um, from you know people like uh, Walter Cronkite and stuff like that um, that was seen as a kind of major turning point, and then obviously uh, Seymour Hersh's uh, revelations um, kind of were uh, you know were considered an important part of of of, of turning the tide uh, away uh, from. uncritical support of vietnam that kind of generation then faded away the and um and then there was a new crop that came up uh in the in the years of the war on terror and um and so many of the people who populate our mainstream media um that's where they that's where they made their careers um and they watched also careers be destroyed for i I don't for light critiques uh or light criticisms of 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 the sort of bloodlust that happened in this country uh, after 9-11. And, like Bill Donahue, um, I think, was a good example of that, right? Yeah, Phil Phil Donahue. Phil yeah, Donahue, yeah, Phil Donahue. Donahue. He was MSNBC guy, like, you know, d- daytime talk uh, talk show guy for, for many years. And then kind of shown on, on MSNBC, uh, just completely, his, just he was like a big deal in the 90s <laughs> and just erased. Like, might, might as well, like, been evaporated um from from public consciousness um so yeah i mean I, I think that those those memories remain for a lot of these people and a lot of these people were just came up in that world that they just came up in 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 that milieu and mm-hmm. they're still there yeah you can't get rid of them I mean Thomas Friedman. Do you remember Thomas Friedman's uh, interview? I, I just like I just remember these things so well. I like I, I I start to feel like an old man, but like I re- like. Do you remember Thomas Friedman on? Uh, I think it was Charlie Rose. Uh, mm-hmm. talk, talk about canceled. Um, Char- Thomas Friedman on Charlie Rose talking about Iraq uh, mm-hmm. in the early days. Uh, in the you know, and he was like, he was like, and this is America. Yep, so yep. suck on that. Like he 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 yep, he, he almost yep. said like the sand n word after that, you know, or like you know you know something like it was just like crazy. The the time that time was fucking crazy. 
It was um, crazy, but let me just say, I mean, the example you just brought up reminds me of Elon Musk saying, we'll coo who we want, right? Like with Venezuela yeah. and stuff. And it's like that mentality still exists. It's just that I think the appetite among the American people for these wars has dissipated for obvious reasons. Yeah. I mean, what do, what do we have to show for these wars? Hopefully this time we make it last because that that was the same thing that happened after Vietnam. Right. right? And, and this, is another, this is another thing that Bessner talks about a lot, like that the the opposition to Vietnam was a, a lot of it was driven by the draft. Yeah. Um, and American policymakers just learned, like, we'll never do the draft again. Come on. We don't need that shit. You know, we'll never do that shit again. That's that's insane. Um, we'll get these people to turn on us. Um, and for a while, their anti-war sentiment was was kind of the was kind of the dominant sentiment for a while. I mean, it you know, it was very difficult for the Reagan administration to drum up support for uh, this, their stuff in Central America and stuff. There was genuine opposition to it and there was mass demonstrations to it. And, you know, the opposition party was genuinely, uh, was genuinely, you know, trying to throw sand in the gears. Uh, and, and they, they called it the Vietnam syndrome. And then it was, you know, desert storm happened and it all just went away. People just forgot. And, uh, and people loved the, the war again. And, you know, they were like, wow, that was cool. That was easy. We have GPS now. That's so cool. We have this thing called GPS. I remember, I think that was like the first yeah. word that they used GPS in. And uh, they were like, this is awesome. This is fucking cool. We, how many Americans died? Like four? And how many Iraqis did we kill? Like, you know, 25,000, whatever. That's great. It's awesome. Um, and we just totally we love, forgot about it. We love gadgets and gizmos. We but love yeah, the gizmos, I th- baby. I think the what happened on 9-11 opened the floodgates. I think that had a huge impact, too. Because the, the fear-mongering... Look, what happened was tragic, but... It was it was used um, as a way to essentially convince Americans that we needed like so many Americans thought that we invaded Iraq because of what happened on 9-11. And that uh, messaging, I think, was very intentional by the Bush administration. Well, speaking of speaking of the bloodlust and 9-11, uh, uh, Iraq, Americans thinking that we did Iraq because of 9-11, that was a line sold to us by the media, by many mm-hmm. of the media figures who continue to be in leadership positions in our ostensibly liberal media. Uh, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic is a guy named Jeffrey Goldberg, who wrote a cover story for The New Yorker, what the time was being edited by David Remnick, and it's still being edited by David Remnick, um, basically saying that uh, Saddam and Iraq were uh, behind 9-11. Um, and that... That, those two guys true. are still in positions of in, immense power and authority uh, within the liberal media. Um, zero, zero accountability consequences for that. Just like flagrant uh, bit of fake news, you know, talk about fake news and disinformation um, and zero, zero punishment. Like no one like there, there are still uh, liberals in good standing uh, in polite society um, and things like that. Whereas um, the opposite the opposite takes the the sort of like uh yo this is this is this is insane uh that that is punished oh, even absolutely. though it was correct yeah so anyway sorry for going on on uh, rant on just one question cuz uh, no. now we're running out of time go off king um 
Yeah, I the only last little thing on that, and then we'll do the final super chats and, and wrap up. Um, I think to, to what we were saying regarding Vietnam and kind of how that moved into Iraq and and like the decision making that was going on among the elites during these during these. I mean, it was, what we have to understand is that like yes, like war is you know to the benefit of a narrow and very powerful part of society, but uh, if there is sufficient uh, um, limitations put on them basically if the costs are too much um you can't effectively you know fight back i mean i think that's part of it's not it's not the only reason why i think the the war in vietnam ended when it ended or why afghanistan ended when it ended i think a lot of this had to do with just the fact that like the ruling class found you know these are not really paying off in any like significant way uh anymore that it's like the costs are truly becoming too much and that us as like you know, when we try to organize with ordinary working class people, our, our project is to like increase those costs as much as we can that um, to make it more costly for the ruling class to do these things. And so some of that has come through, you know, demonstrations and protests. But I think, you know, when we think of like kind of the grander political strategy of like, how do you in policy terms be anti-war? I think a lot of that does end up meaning uh, you have to drain the budgets. You have to put constraints on like their ability to to finance these things to the benefit of a small handful of capitalists, the, the few that Anna was talking about earlier. Um, and so that's like, you know, that's like stuff like Medicare for all. It's like, it's, it's the policies that Bernie was talking about. And when he was, you know, or even just like slashing the budgets on their own terms, like he was pushing for, I believe like a year and a half ago or a year, maybe a year plus or so. Um, but that's, that's effectively, I think, like the most in policy terms, like the, the greatest anti-war strategy we can have is to, to starve the beast in that way. Um, so last super chats, uh, and then we're going to run, um, that Christopher had said ditto to Eclectic's point um, that they can only see strike coverage on YouTube. Um, well, that's in part why we want to do it, because it is so important. And, um, you know, it is unfortunate that, you know, a lot of that coverage doesn't get a ton of views. And that's in part why, like, the media is not going to cover it. There's, like, certain particular class interests, but then there's also just, like, ratings that they're not going to meet with the, with this uh, coverage. Um, and I think that is just kind of indicative of, like, the status of, you know, working class people and, like, in their identification as working class people in America that, um you know, most people like unionization is only around like 12%. It's much lower in the private sector. So um, most people are not connected to unions in the way that they were in the past. And so, um, you know, part of like our project is to inspire those who are in unions to fight for for more and then to inspire people who are not in unions that they actually can, they, they deserve so much more and that they should be fighting for whether it's through unionizing the workplace or, or some kind of grander political project. But um and then the last few, um, Alan, maybe Elaine, um, thanks for giving Anna and Anna the weekend off. Thanks Alain. Alain, thank you. Aw, thanks, Al. Um, cheers. Um, there's two more. Um, oh, Lee has just mentioned earlier, do not forget Grenada under Reagan. I'll never forget Grenada. Boscar Sunkar, forget, forget Grenada. That's like his pet. That's his yeah, pet but, little cause. Boscar um, has I'll a, never forget a Grenada. Oscar's writing like three books right now, and one of them is on Grenada. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, last question, probably the most serious question that we've gotten in a very long time. Well, we the people need a firm stance from Jacobin on the hot Terminator from Terminator Three. Is this publication pro TX or anti TX? 
No women ter terminators. I only accept male terminators. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, Michael Patrick is that his name? The T one, the the guy in T two. Yeah, those are the only ones uh, I support. I don't. I don't know. I don't know what any of this means. So I'm not yeah. going to weigh in. <laughs> All right, Nando set down the Jacobin line on that question. So, yes. Billy, please refer to Nando's answer. Uh, anyways, that's it. Uh, we'll be back next Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Um, so, uh, unless you guys have any final thoughts, I think we can head on out. Yeah, you stay. Go, baby. You stay. Yes. Uh, thank I'm you, here. everyone, for watching. We love you. Lo please like and share the stream. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your family, tell everybody. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to Jacobin's wonderful magazine. We love you, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye.